You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, I'm Jasmine Stoughton, director of Mosaic, and welcome back to another episode of the Mosaic Moment on PPI's Radically Pragmatic podcast. For those of you who don't know, Mosaic is a project at the Progressive Policy Institute that aims to put more women at the forefront of policymaking by empowering experts with the tools and connections needed to engage with the media and lawmakers on today's toughest policy challenges. I have with me here today, Dr. Liz Wilkie. She is a Mosaic alum who researches labor markets and the state of work and business in the modern economy. She's also a principal economist at Gusto, which is a company that serves over 200,000 new and growing businesses with payroll benefits and HR tools. If you want to go ahead and just give a quick overview of the paper, kind of an executive summary. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. And thanks for having me. It's always great to be here. The paper is really trying to set out some of the key questions about contractors and skilling and career development. We've talked a lot in the learning and continual skilling space about employees and how employers can support employees to develop 21st century skills, all the types of new skills that are needed. And what we haven't really thought a lot about in a systematic way is about contractors and independent workers. There are, by some estimates, as many as 60 million independent workers in this economy in in one form or another. It's a really fast growing mode of employment. And if we're gonna develop sort of policies that both protect them, but also encourage them to sort of really fully develop their careers and productively deploy their skills, we need to understand a lot more about them and who they are in the workforce and the ways that they currently, you know, develop their develop their careers and build their skills. And so that's what this paper is really about taking a look at them and identifying some of the main issues that they have and comparing and contrasting how those needs are different from employee needs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I really loved the paper. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's coming out today as well. So I have a couple questions. Um, In the paper, you talk about the various reasons that people take contract and gig work, some of the examples being workers with low replaceability or having that due to a niche skill set or subject matter expertise, or quite the opposite, like workers with a high rate of replaceability because maybe the tasks are easier um, or more transferable. Then we also have these people who are hired to work on a specific project, which I guess is most commonly referred to as gig work. So it's clear to me that there's not just one type of contractor, like they're not a monolith. So in a perfect world that took into account the needs of both employees and contract workers, what would that benefit structure look like? How could it function to basically accommodate all of these different types of workers? So benefits, I'm kind of talking about healthcare, retirement, and unemployment, which you touch on in your paper. Yeah, I think uh, what you're referring to is, you know, how do we think about like a social safety net, right? All these protections that workers tend to get and privileges, right, that workers or that employees get. So I'd be specific with my terminology, but that employees get that contractors don't really have access to and haven't been included in. So unemployment, health insurance, financial and retirement benefits. 
I'm full stop, not trying to dodge the answer to this question, but you've asked me a really big question. So I'm, I'm going to try and sort of piece it together a little bit. I think you've really hit on a key point that is just so salient the more you think about contractors is that there are so many ways to be an independent worker or a contractor or a consultant or a gig worker or a personal services supplier. There are so many names to think about them. And that's reflective of the diversity of the kind of work and the work structures that they do, which is, you know, their primary advantage, right, in the workforce. <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, the, the sort of top line answer to your question, which I, I, I'm not trying to dodge, but is that we, we don't know. Um, you know, the, the fact that there is such a diversity, we really do not understand the ways in which these types of workers currently access these benefits. We don't really understand how contracting fits in to their lives. So Gusto recently did a survey of contractors, and we actually know that a lot of them are part-time and a lot of them have alternate forms of employment through like as an employee in an employee employer relationship which if we, if we knew the extent to which that happens and we think it's pretty sizable portion we actually actually would change the conversation about how important making sure they have access to healthcare is through a contract relationship mm -hmm. um, or if we knew right that you know most of these people are you know you know, very highly educated, which they are, and that uh, instead of buying health insurance through the private marketplace, they actually self-insure themselves through their own income. That meaningfully changes the conversation about what pragmatic policy looks like to get them health insurance. I think once we depart from the basic premise that I, I think is sort of unexceptional that all workers who work in this economy deserve some basic assets and or um, deserve some basic support and services, then it becomes really difficult to think about how to define right that that uh, policy. So, again, not not sort of trying to dodge, but I think that that there are some places we can look, but we really need to understand more about how uh, contractors currently get access to these services and what their major barriers are. I think that there are some obvious places to look. I think unemployment insurance is a key one. We've we've learned a lot during COVID about unemployment insurance for contractors and how that can and can't be done well. I think that there are ways for contractors to prove that they have lost income that they normally would have depended on through their receipts, through their tax filings, not wholly dissimilar from employees. And we can, in fact, think about technological solutions to integrate them into the unemployment insurance system. And I think that we ought to think about doing that and how to do that and then I also think for retirement benefits, uh, employers, for instance, uh, employer matches don't count against the IRS mm -hmm. maximum contribution for 401ks. And they do, uh, but um, contributions are at the same level for self-employed people. And so even thinking there are sort of these different, uh, there are these uh, different benefits, right, that sort of accrue that employers can give, right, sort of these really valuable dollars to employees that don't count against this match, but that do if you're self-employed. I think one of the things that we also uh, think about, we think about these sort of clean categories that all employees have access to health insurance or retirement benefits. And that's, that's categorically untrue. So even in the age of the Affordable Care Act, uh, companies that have fewer than 50 employees are not obligated to provide health insurance. And nearly 20% of the employment in this country is with an employer who has less than 20 employees. And so, 
you know, uh, it's it's to to sort of say that contractors are are you know are the only people that don't have access to these benefits and therefore they're sort of special and it's always better to be an employee because your deal is always better is also not true and i think we can think in a more nuanced way and a more complex way about you know uh that benefits aren't the defining feature of the employer employee relationship um, and that lots of employees even do not have access to these kinds of benefits either under current policy and law that's such a great point. And that's a really fascinating statistic that you made about the number of people who work for a company that's small enough where they actually don't aren't entitled to healthcare. I did not did not know that. So the next question I have is on worker classification, I guess, and it's kind of a tax issue. Um, so worker classification really just gives me a headache generally. Um, I've done quite a bit of political campaigns in the past. So I had all sorts of tax forms to organize uh, when it came to filing my taxes. Filing your taxes and reporting your income is obviously very complicated. Um, essentially, unless you have like one source of income from a single employer, uh, then it can be a little bit easier, but that's not the case for a lot of contract and gig workers. Um, so I'd like to know, and you talk about this in your paper, but what are policy recommendations that you have for navigating the financial side of contract work? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. It's one that we hear over and over again. Gusto facilitates payments to contractors. So we, we care about them a lot as a segment, um, it, especially because small businesses are relying on them more and more. And what we found in our sort of recent survey of contractors is that uh, tax filings and income reporting in a compliant way is the sort of number one thing that they most need help with above and beyond, you know, getting access to retirement benefits or health insurance you know, figuring out how to manage this financial side of their life is is so important. I will again say here that, you know, lots of employees don't have a single job with a very clean, you know, set of deductions, owning a home, donating to charity, right? Uh, you know, investing your time or like doing things to your house. You know, people who have multiple part-time or seasonal jobs also have a higher level of tax complexity. So, you know, contractors obviously are are sort of at the the pointy tip of the tax sphere, so to speak, and that they have much higher levels of tax complexity. But, you know, I, that's not to say that that taxes are really easy for people who are just employees. I, I know from personal experience, I have a I have a, a, a close friend who has been a nurse practitioner contractor and she you know, had to file quarterly quarterly taxes or she had to remit them. Um, and then she lost her job and, you know, she actually used those taxes to sort of supplement her income again, because she did not have unemployment insurance. And now, you know, she sort of has to figure out how to fulfill her tax obligations. What we know from behavioral economics is that saving in advance and sort of keeping that money in a lockbox and knowing what your tax obligations are in the first place is really cumbersome, right? It's very difficult to do and to do well, which is why so many contractors have challenges with this. What I, what I sort of think we could do, right, is when a contractor is an independent worker, is sort of a self-employed person, you know, not a 10-person company that is offering services, but a single person who is offering self-employed services to a company, we can just certify that. And then the company who is already remitting and filing taxes can could, right, do the same thing on behalf of the contractor. There are certainly policy structures that we could, could, put, could put in place 
where employers that are already doing this for employees are effectively doing an extra step in the payment system for contractors. We do not currently have that set up because we are, we've tried to create this very defined line between who's an employee and who's a contractor, which is very understandable. But I think it, it, ends up treating independent self-employed people as businesses. And I think that that's a difficult position to put an individual person in. They are both businesses in many ways, and they are also people and workers, right? In a whole lot of really important ways that our policy framework doesn't currently account for. And I think we could actually do a lot by incorporating that view of them as people who are also trying to manage, right, their own lives. Our policies about taxes for employees understand that because employers are responsible for remitting those taxes because for the, you know, the government knows that it's difficult for people to manage their taxes. We could also recognize that it is perhaps equally difficult for individual workers who are independent contractors to achieve those things and then figure out how to facilitate that right in an employment relationship. Sorry, I don't mean employment relationship like employer-employee. I mean like a, a contractual relationship. I think not treating these people as necessarily uh, like a small business of one, um, but rather as a person filing their taxes um, because not not all of the contractors and gig workers are equipped with the resources and the knowledge to file as a single small business. Um, it, that's that's a whole nother can of worms, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe they are and maybe they aren't. You know, I'm, uh, I personally find it very difficult to file my own taxes and I technically have the skills and education to do it. It's just a real pain and it's yeah. not, it's, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, not, I'm definitely not advocating to treat independent contractors as, you know, employees. There's an important distinction between them. They serve different functions in the labor market. They offer different strategic advantages to business and the relationship that they have to their companies is different. Um, but I do think that it's, it, we can think about them as a yes and. Yes, mm -hmm. they are small businesses and they are individual workers. Yes, they are individual workers and they have aspects of small businesses, they are taking on more risk for their own, you know, for the determination of their own success that employees are not taking on, right? That employers uh, are taking on for employees. Um, that comes with it both a lot more opportunity and a lot more risk. And, you know, what we're talking about is how do we help people manage those risks by understanding you know, that it's not a business with a board of directors and, you know, like, a, you know, it's, they're not sort of businesses in that sense. They are businesses in other senses. And so how do we find the right balance for a, this particular segment of workers who are contractors, right, to help, to help uh, appreciate the fact that they are both businesses and individuals? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I really liked that part of your piece. In the report, you kind of break down um, the pros and cons, like the benefits that an independent worker has versus the benefits that an employee has and vice versa, the the disadvantages um, that both have. I think it provided a very comprehensive view of worker classification. So the next question that I have is about skilling. In your piece, you discuss the cycles of skill development and workplace needs. You cite um, from the OECD that the half-life of workplace skills or the time that's required to have the value of 
skills in a workplace is about five years. So how do these concepts interact with current systems of education and upskilling where the credential needed basically for any professional job is a university degree? This question is much bigger than the question about contractors. Um, I think contractors are actually a really unique case study for us here in terms of thinking about you know, lifelong learning, 21st century skilling, much more agile uh, skill development in the labor market. I think that contractors really have an opportunity to teach us something about what is effective. So one of the really astounding statistics about contractors from the survey that we did with Gusto is that upwards of 90% of them take advantage of a distinct opportunity to build their skills when an employer offers one to them. And again, employer, I mean contracting firm. That number is astounding. And any learning and development director who thought they had a way to get 90% of their employee workforce to take advantage of a training opportunity when offered would be ecstatic for that. What we are learning is that contractors are sort of the original lifelong sort of ad hoc learners. They have really strong incentives to keep their skills very sharp and very relevant and to demonstrate, right, that they have those skills to future, to future employers because they are going back to the labor market all the time. Their cycle of learning how to uh, display their skills and their cycle of learning about what skills are most important across a really broad array of employers is just so fast, right? So a contractor who's doing you know, work for three or four or six uh, clients a year is going to learn a lot faster about what skills are really valuable and how employers are using them. And they also are going to have really strong incentives to pick up those skills so that they are valuable to the next set of six employers. I think that contractors also do tend to be more educated than the average population. That is correlated with a lot of things that make for successful contracting, like self-directed career development, right? Um, having really specialized knowledge that is valuable to companies, right, that they're willing to pay for, you know, understanding how to network good opportunities, et cetera. That is not to paint contractors with a blanket brush. Um, but they really, I think the, the sort of takeaway for me here is yes and, right? For thinking about an education system, the fact that most contractors are so educated implies that a higher level of education is probably a pretty good thing for navigating this future modern workforce that we are all about to be sort of put into in one way or another. We do need higher levels of skills in order to effectively navigate sort of a modern economy. I think that there is no drawback to having more access to high quality, affordable post-secondary education in any and all forms. And, so I think we need sort of bigger investments up front, right, before we enter the labor market. And I think that we need um, ways to invest incrementally in skills throughout our life cycle. Contractors do not go back to college for another degree by and large, right? They add self-directed learning onto their careers because they have identified its value to them and its direct connection to their work. And we know from a lot of learning and development experience that the most valuable training that you undertake is when it's directly related to a job that pays you, right? And so contractors are just very close to that cycle. 
I think we can learn a lot from them about how they identify those skills and how they build them up. And I think that there are lessons that we can learn that can be applied to uh, regular employee workforces to really increase the rate at which we are sort of skilling everybody across the board. Yeah, and that that's a good point. I mean, thinking about it in practice, companies traditionally, and I don't know the percent of how many companies do this, but I do know that a lot of companies have continuing education funds for their employees, um, which sometimes, you know, will pay for grad school and other times it'll be more targeted skilling and certifications and things like that. But I kind of get the sense that it might be more advantageous to spread that money out and to do skilling um, for a wider uh, range of skills and for more employees and more workers, which is kind of what contractors do. Um, from what I understand, being able to grab a certain skill or expertise from each place that they're going and learn a new set of skills, learn a new workplace environment and be able to take all of those skills and advance themselves each step of the way. Yeah. Contractors, really have strong incentives because they're put into new environments, right? More often than employees are put into new environments. They have to really quickly learn the lay of the land, find out what they need to know. And also they have to do it all the time while they're demonstrating their expertise, right? They need Mm -hmm. to give people confidence that they, that they know sort of what's going on and what's going to happen. And you know, that is all sort of self-directed for them. I think one of the lessons that we can learn from them is that really tightly linking the training that workers are getting to the jobs that need to be done either now or shortly in the future is a really good way to incentivize that learning and that effective learning. One of the ways that L&D learning and development departments or HR departments can do this for workers is to think about career development and planning and to sort of help employees think about how to map their current job, areas that their skills might be weak or that they could do their job better or that they could set themselves up for a promotion by investing in X, Y, and Z skill and then putting the dollars there, right? Because then you have alignment between the training that is going to be gotten, the goal or the outcome, right? The payoff to that training is much closer and you know it tracks along like a bit of career progression that the HR department can actually help with that career development, which is a function that they already take on. I think that there's a lot to learn there about contractors are already tightly linking their skill development with their career development. Mm-hmm. And I think that HR departments have a lot to learn from contractors and how they do that in order to build programs for employees to do that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think... Going back to the question, it seems to me that workplace training needs are much better addressed outside of the traditional education system once you're already in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about like a four-year college degree, for sure, I... I, I will make a joke here that I think is sort of half half funny, half serious, which is that no no company hires a college graduate expecting that they know anything about how to do the job they're being hired for, 
right? Um, in some ways, you know, a college degree is the start of your learning process, right? For lot for for most people, right? Life is long and careers are long, and you know, most people will tell you that the things they learned in college, you know, are only sort of tangentially related to the things that they do in their job, and and that's fine, right? That doesn't mean that college isn't valuable. It means it's not, you know, it's not the the only way for us to acquire skills everybody sort of intuitively knows this who has been in the labor force for a long time where i do think uh those traditional institutions have an opportunity to integrate into new systems right so lots of colleges have already recognized this and are offering professional certificates and training Right. And they are offering, you know, in partnership with companies, right? Community colleges in particular are sort of at the forefront of this, where they are working with employers to understand what those skilling needs are and to use their capabilities to do curriculum development and to be a neutral, credible, verifiable third party. Um, to work with employers to make sure that they are offering short-term smaller bits of training that really help to advance uh, like work skilling goals. I don't wanna say that I think that colleges are dead. I do think that there's room for a four-year degree, but in the cycle of long-term, lifelong, continual learning for, for workforce skilling, colleges have to change that model if they want to be a part of it. And I think that there is going to be room for colleges for private sector educational companies, for the government, et cetera, because you don't just need the skilling part, you need the credential that's verifiable, that's trustworthy, and you also need incentives for people to understand which program they need for HR departments, to understand which programs are available, to do all of that connecting. I don't think that this is, um, I don't think that this is a problem for one, a portion of society to solve. This is a problem that everybody is going to have to play a role in. And I do think that colleges and universities in particular have a really important role to play because they have a lot of institutional credibility about skilling and development. They need to transform their models in order to get to the part of skilling and development that happens after the four-year degree. Very well said. I think that that explains a lot. Um, so my last question um, is a little bit outside of your traditional wheelhouse, but um, we're going to give it a shot. So um, across the world, companies are experiencing a talent shortage. In this particular paper, you write that digitization and contract work can help alleviate those shortages as workers can basically do targeted work for different companies and work from anywhere in the world, um, are there tax and immigration structures that need to be updated in order to take full advantage of this changing workplace? I, I am going to tread very lightly here as I am neither a tax nor immigration expert. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try and stick firmly to my lane, but I can say there there is a talent shortage. People, the, the talent needs have changed a lot and are going to continue to change. And the increasing digitalization that's happening in our world are, is making it easier for companies from anywhere to find talent wherever it is. What I also think is that while US-based companies may have opportunities to 
touch international talent that to supplement talent needs. That same is true of British companies, European companies, Indian companies, Brazilian companies, Chinese companies, et cetera. And one way that um, the globalization of the skilled talent market, right, that might be occurring here will not alleviate the fact that if there are a lot more jobs globally than there are skilled people to do those jobs, that is going to push up, right? The sort of cost of that talent. Right now, international contracting is such a small share of the total amount of contracting that happens, as far as we know. According to Gusto, it's in the lower you know, single digits. It's achieved a lot of growth, but obviously when you start from a low number, you get high levels of growth. Now is a great time to be thinking about it because international arrangements about tax or immigration take a long time to develop. But I don't think we're at a point where action has to happen immediately, especially when we don't know that much about what the impacts are going to be about how jobs and skills are going to sort of be reorganized and redistributed with international work. Yeah, that's a really helpful perspective. And I, I, I think slow and steady is not a bad thing here. Definitely not. Um, I think you, you mentioned global competitiveness. I think that is something that PPI has talked about a lot with um, Department of Commerce specifically in the, the International Trade Administration. Um, we've talked to them in the past about the need to be globally competitive with our workforce in this digital economy. And it's something I'm excited to explore more here at PPI um, and hopefully with you down the line as well. Yeah. From a competitiveness and skill perspective, I think we talk a lot about international contractors as, you know, from the lens of U.S. companies sort of outsourcing cheap labor or, you know, looking for, for talent internationally to supplement talent shortages. There is the flip side of that, which is that the U.S. is currently the world leader in digital skills and competencies. And that labor market goes both ways. US, uh, US workers with digital skills also have opportunities to you know, produce work for European or Canadian or British or Indian companies. And um, there is there's sort of an, there are issues on both sides that I think are currently underexplored, but that I, I'm glad that uh, the government is already looking into and thinking about. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast again, Liz. We're really, really lucky to have you. Um, and I hope that we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks so much, Jasmine. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute. Or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.